This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Ben Fetter is president of International Partnerships for the United States for Tencent, the Chinese internet titan that owns WeChat. Previously, Ben was CEO of Take-Two Interactive, publisher of Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto. Now, he's also the author of Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back, a tale of his road to self-discovery when he left corporate America, unplugged, and took his family to live in Bali for a year. And this is what we talk about, about priorities in our lives and how to keep them foremost in our minds, about our legacies and what they mean for how we live our lives every day. We discuss the importance of realizing, hard as it may be to see, that we do indeed have choices, all of us, even if not every one of us has the option to chuck it all and move to a Pacific island for a long stretch, and that it's essential to make conscious, deliberate decisions about what we do with our precious time here on Earth. Ben describes the benefits of mindfulness, yoga, and a practice of inquiry or challenging assumptions, especially about ourselves, for freeing ourselves to live in a way that is more closely aligned with our values. I hope you like this Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would really appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on iTunes. This will help others to find it and enjoy it too. So now, without further ado, get set to listen and learn about ways you can rejuvenate your own sense of purpose in your life. It's Ben Fetter. Welcome to Work and Life. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your experience. You have a remarkable story to tell. And of course, not everyone has the opportunity, the privilege really, to 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 be rising to the top spot of, a, of an organization and and then to have the the opportunity, well, to, to just say goodbye to it all and, well, take your shoes off, take their shoes off in Bali for a year to decompress, reprioritize, to find oneself. But even though most of our listeners are not in that same position, as, as you were and may not really be able to leave it all in the way that you could, I am certain that our listeners uh, will learn from your personal journey um, and find a way to draw some lessons from it. So tell us, what was going on inside of you at work and your community with your family that led to this dramatic decision for you to leave it all? Um, well, it's a great question, and um, you know the decision at the end of the day wasn't all that. I mean, 
ultimately is dramatic, but there was a long lead up to it and mm-hmm. it didn't happen overnight. Um, but, you know, as you point out, I, um, I was lucky enough to, enough to have some success in my career. Um, I have, uh, in addition to my job, I also have a family of wife and four children and mm-hmm. mind the extended family. And, um, you know, I had been, you know, for many years, we've fantasized like many other people about taking extended time off. Oh, okay. So that's something that you had talked about as a family? Well, with my wife, you know, when we got married, kind of as a fantasy, and then life just kind of gets ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows. Um, and I had this growing sense as I was organizing um, a turnaround of a company with global operations and therefore on a plane, um, circling the globe multiple times a year. And I had this growing sense of that kind of, you know, as, you know, one year turned into the next, mm. that I was losing touch with um, my family. And that there was this moment, I remember, and I talk about in the book, where I come home from work one day, mm-hmm. and I, um, I crack the door open of my son's room, who was in eighth grade at the time. And uh, I just, you know, said, you know, crack it open. I said, hi, Sam. And he just kind of grunted something at me. As, and, as eighth graders are wont to do. Well, yeah, maybe I could have, I should have thought that instead of <laughs> sort of saying, well, I have to change things up. It could have been just a phase. But I did have this notion. It's like, okay. And then we went to dinner and then kind of he grunted some more at dinner and then went back and barricaded mm-hmm. himself inside his room to do some homework. He's a serious student. Mm-hmm. And I had this notion. It's like, well, next year he goes to high school and this is only going to get worse. And I'm going to be circling the globe, and he's going to be doing what he does at school. And then he's going to go to college, and he's out of the house, and the whole thing's over. And, it's all, and, all, and all of a sudden, it's like it, it's, it's, you know, it's a now or never moment. And at the same time, he had a younger sister who, you know, when I took over the company, was probably, I don't know, three years old, and then she was seven years old, and I barely knew her. Hmm. And I just had this this notion, this realization, this uh, just, I remember this moment of, you know, this is where it happens, right? This is where husbands and fathers turn, or sorry, men turn into the husbands and fathers they never intended to be, hmm. right? It's kind of everybody, you follow your career, you follow your progression, you get a promotion, you get an opportunity, you go, go, go. And then, you know, I knew plenty of people, I'm sure every, all your listeners know plenty of people who have who had parents whose you know, fathers were running around doing what they were doing and didn't have time for their children and ultimately mm. grew up presenting it. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment of, un- of understanding. It's like, well, you know, this is where it's happening. I felt these roads diverging, and I needed to make a stand. Mm. And I had a number of conversations with my wife, and she kind of, um, which I describe in the book in terms of how we came to the decision. But it was this kind of sense of now or never of, making a deliberate choice of being the person that I wanted to be, the husband and father that I wanted to be, and um, realizing that it that there were choices to be made, right? And mm-hmm. I could continue... How did you come to you know, realize so, that, Ben, that, 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 like, that you had a sorry. choice? Well, look, we all have choices. Um, well, and, yes, of course, but not everybody is conscious of the extent to which they can choose. So how... What was it that helped you to see that you did have choice? Um, it's a great question. Um, first of all, I credit my wife a lot, who kind of helped me to see some things that I um, didn't wouldn't 
otherwise mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just kind of, you know, I was at this moment in my life in my mid-40s, and, I, you know, when a lot of men and probably women, too, ask themselves these questions about what it's all about and what are we trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, at the, at the same time, honestly, I had a friend who um, died of cancer in his mid-40s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another kind of like, well, you know, what's this all about and what am I trying to achieve? And mm-hmm. so what? Mm-hmm. So I, so stock rises a little bit more, we get a little more profit, I get another bonus. And, um, uh, you know, in terms of what motivates me personally, you know, money always motivates people, but it's not kind of the primary motive for me. And I kind of just asked myself the questions about, you know, mm-hmm. who I wanted to be and the kind of life I wanted to lead. Mm-hmm. Um and I suppose at the end of the day, it required a little bit of confidence that, you know, it's, you know, something something good will happen out of this. And I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm willing to take a leap and there was a leap of faith and all of that. It is very, very difficult to pull yourself away. And, you know, you sort of started the conversation with, you know, not everybody has the opportunity or the wherewithal to do this. And I did assert um, that. Am I wrong? Um, if I say you're wrong, I'll sound defensive. I'd say I have a few answers to the question. <laughs> okay. Um, I do think I do think you can be wrong, not necessarily wrong, but you mm-hmm. can be wrong. Um, but I did, but I I don't want to underestimate um, the career risks that I took as a result. Right. I don't think I, I don't think I'd be homeless and starving if things didn't work out. But I do think that you know you take a long while, you build up a career to sort of you know in my career, everybody has different ambitions, but my my ambition was to run. A large company in the media industry, and I got a chance to do that. Which you were doing, which I was doing, and I was having a really fantastic time. And I think that's probably kind of where some of the issues came into play, right? Because I was just so focused on me, 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 me. Hmm. Um, and so, so there's kind of, you know, there was that that realization. Um, and then to answer your question about whether it's whether you're wrong or not, I have to say of the people that I Mm-hmm. met with in Bali, you know, I had my career, I met nurses and teachers and artists and uh, farmers and people from all walks of life. In fact, I was the exception um, in terms of the kind of career I had mm-hmm. people from all walks of life who had gone there because they were making a deliberate choice about the way they wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, in terms of money, it kind of starts with the realization that there are parts of this world that are really, really cheap to live, and Bali is one of them. Hmm. And it's a beautiful place to live, but also does not require a lot to live. Mm-hmm. And many of them actually experienced an increase in their standard of living by hmm. doing it. Hmm. And so, you know, on the one hand, I do understand people with kids in school and obligations and parents, potentially elderly parents, and all the obligations that, that come with life. It is not necessarily the case that um, to make a deliberate choice about how you want to spend your time on earth and who you want to spend your time with doesn't necessarily um, uh, require, you know, a ton of money in the bank. It requires somewhere with all. There were people there that I met who, you know, literally had a five-year plan and literally sort of said, we're not going to go to the movies this Saturday because in five years from now, we're going to save up our money and we're going to take an amazing adventure. Hmm. And it requires that kind of uh, planning and fortitude, but it's totally possible, and it's possible for anybody. Having said that, I don't yeah. want to sound defensive. I get, um, uh, I get kind of my background, and in the book that I write, I really don't try to hide it anyway. I own it, um, 
and I did have an ability to do it where others don't. Right. You know, at the same time, I did take a career. Well, and, and you did it at a certain scale and scope that, you know, that is one path that was available to you. There's lots of different ways, and I want to get into this, especially when I, I probe you more for ideas that listeners can take from your book about what they can do. You know, no matter what the circumstance. So I was really just playing devil's advocate there because, yes, I, I have great admiration for what you did in asking yourself the, the important questions, especially at midlife, which is when it tends to happen that you really start to, to question things. And there was this, this kind of triggering event with, with your son that led you to really open your mind to, to these, you know, to, well, is there an alternative path? Now, I, I think you mentioned in your book that you were also working with an executive coach at the time. Uh, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how that process was, you know, a, a part of your decision making, if it was. Um, well, I, went, I mean, she's uh, first of all, she's a woman who was probably 20 years my senior at the time and had a lot of experience coaching executives. And I went to her and asked, you know, am I destroying my career? Am I, have I lost my mind? Am I just going through a midlife crisis? Am I about to destroy my career by doing this? And and let's just define this so that listeners understand what this actually was. Like, what if you could just encapsulate briefly? Like, what is it that you did? Um, I went to my board. So the company was in a was when I took it over was in real trouble and you know, organized a turnaround. And after I was supposed to be there as a temporary CEO, I was part of a, a hostile takeover. Um, and I, if these things happen, temporary became permanent. At the end of four years, I went to my board and I said that everything you've asked me to do, um, uh, the company's in great shape. It's probably one of the best position companies in the industry. We've turned profitability around. We've turned the portfolio around. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there. But everything you've asked me to do, I owe my family some time. And um, I'm stepping down. And we have a plan. We have a succession plan. We know exactly what's going to happen. It's not going to be disruptive all to the organization. Really tried to cover off a lot of, if not all, the loose ends around it and um, made it as smooth as possible. But I said, I need to go, and I owe need, I need my family some time. And I stepped down. Um, Did you define the length, the length of time? Um, well, no, I, there was no length of time, right? They sort of said, I, I you know, I just... I see. You know, I was leaving. I wasn't coming back. Okay. And so, when you um, said I, I owe my family some time, you didn't have a, a boundary at the end of that time in in mind, or did uh, you? Well, I kind of I well, part of the discussion was would there be a boundary, and they just sort of felt if you're taking anything more than a long vacation, you you know we're we're not really up for that. Right. And so I said, okay, then I have a choice to make. Well, it's understandable if if you were if it was open ended. They got to proceed, right? With well, business. no, but if, even if it was six months, they would have. You know, I see. Sorry, we can't. We can't do that. Um, so I pulled my four kids out of school in New York, and my wife and I um, packed our bags and decamped to Bali, Indonesia, um, and went there for about six months, and then added another two months on top of that to travel around Southeast Asia with our kids, mm -hmm. and then ultimately came back. So, and ten, it was the better part of the year, closer to eight months. Okay. All right, so that's what, that's what it is. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so the so back to your executive coach. Right. So I sort of said, "Am I destroying my career by doing this?" Yeah. He said, um, "You know, I have coached a lot of senior executives that have had great careers. They go from one position to the next to the mm -hmm. next, ever increasing success. 
says, do you know what happened to those people? I said, what? Because they dropped out of a heart attack at 55. And that kind of rang true to me because my father had dropped out of a heart attack at 61. Hmm. I, it also kind of caused me to ask questions about, like, you know, what's this all about? Mm-hmm. And I think she was making a point because I think she saw something in me that sort of knew that I needed to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, the board's going to freak out. And she said, you know, the board's going to do what the board's going to do. you got to do this for yourself. You know, are you living to work or are you working to live? I mean, what are you, why are we here? And... Um, you know, I didn't quite buy it at the time because I was, believe me, I had my head down. I had my blinders on. I was oh, I'm sure. success, success, mm-hmm. success, more success, please. And success is like a, you know, it's like a drug, right? It's an addiction. And the more you have, mm-hmm. the more you want, the more you crave, the more you want, the more you crave. And and the more you get, and, and kind of you get on this kind of hamster wheel. And I definitely was on the hamster wheel. And I don't know, I don't know what it was. You're asking me at the top of the hour, kind of what was that absolute epiphany? And I have some narrative around it, but I just I just knew that I had to shake things up. I had to get off. Ben, let's get back to uh, how people reacted. So you had to find some courage to, to, to talk to people, especially at work, I'm sure, um, to, to support you. Uh, what, was the, what was the scariest part of, uh, of making this, this decision and this move? Um, you know, it's all scary, right? It's all kind of, you know, it's, it's a leap into the unknown. And, um, you know, people's reaction. I mean, what I was concerned about mostly was, you know, my board's reaction, my partner's reaction, my business partners. Um, and, you know, I wanted to do this as smoothly as I could and preserve what I could. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think people would, you know, I knew people would be unhappy with the decision. And, um, and then, you know, oddly enough, a lot of people within the organization came over to me and sort of said things like, thank you for showing us kind of that there's more to life than just work and making real statements wow. about that. And, and thank you, for, you know, there's kind of a, a little bit of a thank you, a little bit of an admiration. A lot of people came out of the woodwork. There are people that I had known. I tell the story of one guy who is, you know, really of a truculent litigator um, in the New York business world who kind of took me out to lunch and, um, sort of exposed a part of me that I'd never seen before. He goes, well, let me tell you kind of when he heard about what I was doing, said, I need to talk to you about kind of, you know, what's going on in my mind. Uh-huh. And I've had a number of those conversations from, from men, mostly I'm afraid not so much women, but men mostly who have put on a face for work and put mm-hmm. on a persona for work because it's what they do and it's required for success, but it's not who they are. Mm-hmm. And or who they um, want to be, and this encourage people. That's right. Out. Maybe maybe that's a better way to put it. It's, yeah. it. I'm sorry. I just wanted to underscore the point that it's it's not who they are. It's it's really more about who they want to be, right? Because that mask is who they are acting as. Yes. Yeah. Right. I'm so. And I was kind of surprised where it comes from. Right. It's almost like the people that you least expect it to come from is ultimately where it does come from. So they were. What did they want to say to you, Ben? You know, I think, um, you know, a lot of them were kind of like, wow, that's really brave. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were things like, um, I wish I could do that. Um, and like hmm. the top of the hour, you sort of said, you know, wish I could do that comes from all sorts of people in socio socioeconomic class. And they don't mm-hmm. quite realize, mm-hmm. they don't quite recognize that they can do it if they only wanted to. But I don't, if you can't do it, then you don't really want to do it. 
Hmm. And um, so I got some I got some of those reactions. Some of them just kind of wanted to like understand my decision making a little bit more. Um, I, you know, it was kind of there were there were any number of decisions, and I had I had some also some negative reactions from people that had a stake in my decision mm-hmm. and thought that um, thought that either I was making a mistake or that I wasn't treating people. You know, somehow I wasn't treating people right by my resigning. Um, I see. And, um, that it was a selfish act. You know, I did feel as a leader, I did feel it was a bit of a selfish act. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I had a lot of trouble with that because I take leadership seriously. And, um, you know, I got from various sources, I got talked out of it and um, talked out of that line of thinking because it just wasn't helping me and wasn't helping anybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did get that reaction a little bit. Well, yeah, you're leaving. Well, it's a bit of, there, there's kind of that there's that selfish act, and there's also this kind of this, this disbelief that I was turning um, uh, turning my nose up at kind of a whole incentive structure. It's like, well, how could you? Because you're think of all the stock options and mm-hmm. this and that, and you're kind of you're leaving that all that on the table just for for what? Just leave. So it makes it and kind of it just, uh, illegitimate for others to be pursuing it if you if you you know just forsake it. Well, I just think that so many people are bought into all of these uh, mm-hmm. compensation systems that there's, you know, you do something like this and like blinkers go off and does not compete, does not compete, does not compete. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a little bit of that, I think. Well, it forces people to question their own choices and their, really their values. Uh, so in, in yeah, that a sense... Lot of this is a statement of values. And in that sense, it's, it's, uh, it's really quite an important leadership act, right? To, to, to try to live your values. I mean, that's, that's what leaders do. Uh, on the other hand, you had this set of responsibilities. And so I could well imagine how people were wanting to pull you in, but you somehow found a way through that. And, and what, what I want to make sure we pick up on in the second half of the show, which we're getting to shortly is, um, you know, what advice you have for people, uh, to help them no matter what they're career stage or you know what part of the uh, you know socioeconomic ladder they, they they are residing on how people can find the wherewithal as you called it to to make a choice that would be like this maybe not the same obviously not the same one but 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 similar to to find the kind of freedom so let's get to that though like what you what happened in Bali what did you do and what changed? <laughs> you know, it was kind of this wonder, it was this, like tense thing between me and my wife when we were talking about this. Like, what am I going to do? You know, you're CEO of a company in New York. You can imagine there's a lot of stimulation coming in from <laughs> yeah. different directions all Non-stop. Day long. Non-stop, right? And you're kind of addicted to that stimulation, right? It's dopamine, mm-hmm. dopamine, dopamine. And, um, and I really didn't know what I was going to do. And, wow. Uh, she said, well, why don't you just be bored? How about that? Hmm. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing you say to your children. But um, uh, I didn't really have a plan when I was going, honestly. I had a few ideas of what I wanted to do, um, and one of which was learning how to meditate because there's so much talk about it now. I mean, at the time, it wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, so when was this? I a book that I thought was really compelling, and I, was really want- I really wanted to pursue that. Sorry, well, when, when did this occur? How long ago? About six, seven years ago. Okay. And the book, yeah. the, the book that influenced your thinking, what was that? Uh, the book by a Buddhist monk called uh, Yonggi Rinpoche, and he wrote a book called Joyful Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I happened to pick up at an airport one day. I was just on one of my business mm-hmm. trips. And um, You were searching. 
I guess it was Sir Charles. I guess must have been right. But he kind of has this wonderful moment when he's, he's this guy who grows up in Nepal and he's got what he describes as what would be described in the West as severe anxiety disorder in a place of the world where there's a lot to be anxious about, right? Yes. Security, shelter, security, all of this stuff. And he uh, and he finds his way to the United States one day as, a, as after he becomes a monk and. He sees all the shiny cars in the malls and the shopping and all this stuff. He goes, wow, people here must be so happy. <laughs> and then he kind of realizes what's really going on, and it's a bit of an inquiry. It's like, what's going on? And what's the antidote? <laughs> and, you know, from a monk, it's not surprising that the antidote would be kind of, well, why don't you sit and meditate? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think he had a lot of wisdom in there and a lot of, and I do think there's a lot of wisdom in, in mindful meditation. And a lot of the book is this discovery of when I'm in Bali, um, not just discovering relationships, but discovering for myself um, certain exercises that I would say or certain practices that um, have really to this day have grounded me and um, have given me an enormous sense of, of both joy and wisdom. Um, that I thought was impossible, opening up a world to me that I never, ever imagined I would experience. And it was almost a complete surprise. It was not what I expected when I was going on sabbatical. Hmm. Um, but I really pursued something. And the story in the book is just really the story of how you know, some guy comes into a, um, a company and a hostile takeover and a turnaround and firing people and, you know, profit, 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 and then you know, finds his way kind of on a meditation cushion in Bali or in a yoga mat in Bali and, um, you know, really begins to change. I mean, that person's me, but it's really, uh, you know, fundamentally changed who I am and how I deal with, um, you know, everyday living now. So, Ben, uh, you're, you're in Bali and you, you don't know what to do, but you know that you want to learn meditation. It sounds like that was something that was in the back of your mind, if not the front of it, and you, you began to, to practice that. What, what changed in you uh, and in your relationship? Well, let's start with, with your family. Um, well, you know, well, the meditation, what changes my family, kind of two separate things. But Okay. Um, you know, I think that I, I don't know, you know I came with, I came to this realization that I don't know the way I was reacting or um, acting with the world or reacting to the world kind of wasn't working for me anymore um, or wasn't working in the same way. And um, uh, you know, either through um, you know I can't quite I can't quite place it. I'm kind of struggling for the words, but. Um, I felt like I needed a different way to be after doing, 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 doing. I kind of I felt like I needed to be somewhat present for myself and for my family. Um, and I had like, you know, when I was starting meditation, I had many you know, miss, misstarts about the whole thing. <laughs> As most and people do. Of, we talk a right, lot about uh, meditation on this show and have had a number of experts and practitioners of all different kinds sharing their experiences. And that's certainly one of the common themes that it's... Uh, it's really hard to, to, to get going. It's hard to get going. I mean, it's hard period to meditate. And then I had like, you know, all sorts of weird experiences in Bali where it's kind of, I mean, you know, Bali's got a bit of a, there's a, a part of Bali that's kind of this real healing culture. A lot of people and a lot of pain kind of come to kind of hmm. um, somehow fi- find some sort of relief from all that. And, 
you know, as somebody coming in from the kind of background I came into, I walked into that and I just didn't really connect to it in any way. Um, not that I didn't appreciate it. Um, but I really had trouble connecting to it. And, you know, eventually I had to teach myself how to, how to meditate and I got a lot of books and a lot of, um, read a lot about it and really tried to do it myself and never quite had a teacher that many people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, but I started going in deep, right? I started going into meditation. I started going into yoga, um, learning how to breathe, learning how to um, watch my thoughts, understand my, you know, just kind of examine my thoughts and recognize that, um, you know, one of the great revelations is, you know, recognizing that thoughts are not real, right? They're just secretions of the mind. They're illusions. And, you know, you know one of the analogies that I tell myself, I know it's not biologically correct, but, you know, um, for a construct, it's sort of corrected. You know, the, the the brain creates thoughts in the way that um, sweat glands create sweat, right? They just it's just a biological thing, and kind of like it, they just keep getting produced, right? And um, it's really easy to get carried away with what those what those thoughts or it's easy to get carried away with the thoughts, and really easy to get to believe that those thoughts are kind of real and they become you. And the whole process of um, meditation and yoga, and I also became a bit of an artist when I was there. Is kind of a process of witnessing yourself from the outside, and ultimately with the goal of um, dissolving the ego. And as you know, if you've talked a lot about meditation, right? There's, I mean, that's one of one of the goals is, um, you know, not thinking that you're the center of the universe. And you can imagine when you're CEO of a company with, you know, literally hundreds or thousands of people reporting to you that you can come to believe that you are at the center of the universe. Of course, yes. And it's, um, it's not, and it's like, you know, I didn't find it healthy, I didn't find it comfortable. And, and, and yet, of course, to of get there, you have to, I'm, I'm sorry, finish your thought, and then I have another question. No, no, I'm done. I'm done. Well, you know, to, to get to the, uh, to those kinds of realizations, you, you really have to focus on yourself in, entirely, right? Uh, it's sort of yeah, a paradox of the, of the process. Uh, so, um, please finish your thought, and then I, then I want to get back to this question of how your relationships evolved during this this adventure. Well, look, what I try to do in the book is really not make it about a lesson in meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's lots written about it. I think there's um, lots of different paths you can go, and um, I try to make the story as personable as I can. And um, I describe my own experience without trying to be prescriptive. But, yeah, you know, no, I think that was a good choice. Yeah. yeah, because there is so much out there on how to meditate, and what you're describing here is how to find the room in your life to to get closer to who you are and want to be. So, so what happened in your relationship with your family? How did things start to shift? Um. I mean, obviously, you were you there know, with them, so you were physically right. present uh, a lot yeah, more, it was, I assume. It was, it was kind of interesting. Well, first of all, you know, a big part of our experience was, you know, the school that we put them in in Bali was this extraordinary place called the Green School. And um, it's a school built in the middle of the jungle made entirely out of renewable materials. It's got a totally bespoke environmental agenda. Um, and because it's, cre- it's built by the very... Um, creative entrepreneur named John Hardy, right? These are not just grass huts in the jungle. They're like cathedrals of hmm. bamboo in the jungle. Um, wow. And it was entirely bespoke um, education that 
really focused on not only the environment, but also the love of learning and the joy of learning. And so for my kids kind of coming out of a, mm-hmm. you know, New York kind of school system where it's kind of succeed, succeed, they have their own versions of success at all costs. Of course. You know, to come into that and just kind of like, this guy's all breathe, exhale, you know, um, and let's enjoy learning, let's enjoy school again. Um, you know, for them, that was kind of almost their own sabbatical. And their first day of school, of they come home and they go, Dad, it's such a slacker school. <laughs> um, and then. But that you know, was your eldest? Like, was that Sam? Right. You're like, there was, you know, it comes home and no homework. I was like, what do you mean there's no homework? And so, look, we just went. And the way they taught, I mean, it was just the most extraordinary thing. And for, um, for kids going to kind of a more, a much more traditional school in New York, it's a total breath of fresh air. So everybody all of a sudden exhaled. Mm-hmm. And my oldest son, who's kind of, you know, who's barricaded inside, inside the room, all of a sudden, first of all, kind of noticed a sense of humor come out that I hadn't seen in years. Nice. Just kind of a lightness about being. Hmm. Um, and um, What a thrill that must have been. Totally, right? And then in addition to that, you know, apropos of getting outside your own head, right, because of the environmental agenda and this realization about what's going on in the environment, I, you know, there's this kind of, as a 15-year-old kid, you sort of see this political awareness emerging all of a sudden realizing that, wait, you know, there's there are things going on on the, on the planet that I need to be concerned about and mm. that I can do something about and I can get involved with. Oh, that's um, so As important. opposed to, you know, just getting my grades, so I can get to college, mm-hmm. so I can graduate school, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, so he I, became more um, connected to his place in, in the larger scheme of things. Totally. As, as I'm sure totally. your other kids did, too, in, in, in a different way. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and so I saw that. And then the other thing is that I had a daughter who was really bullied in school in New York. Um, yet another reason for us to kind of pull her out and do something new. And I remember her saying, um, before we went, she goes, I, you know, she was, how old was she? She was probably nine or 10 at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I wonder, she said to me, I wonder daddy, if, you know, girls everywhere are the same way they are, like the school that I come from, or they're different. And she shows up in the school in Bali, and the girls could not have been nicer, right? And she also discovered this great joy of learning. And so she kind of comes to Bali in this kind of victimized, depressed kind of mood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she, too, begins to start singing and creating songs and writing songs, and she became very musical in Bali. Wow. Um, and each one of us kind of explored some new creative dimension um, about themselves, and I'll tell you about mine in a moment, but we all kind of explored that. And then finally, this realization, you know, having, having had this kind of high-minded agenda for what I was trying to do, yeah. all of a sudden you get to Bali and you realize, wait, I am spending every day, all day with my wife. I've never done that before. <laughs> every meal, every waking hour, kind of, um, mm-hmm. there she is. And um, that's not uh, a test that a lot of people pass. But for us, it really um, was a marvelous, uh, a marvelous time. We got to know each other again, and um, so kind of worked with my my wife. It worked with my kids. We spent a lot of time together, um, and we went on adventures together. Um, and I do think there's something about you know part of when I was traveling the globe for work, part of me felt like I'm experiencing all these interesting things, meeting all these interesting people, going to interesting places. And it's just you. My day to day experience is diverging from the day-to-day experience of the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't I love to share this with them if I could, but, you know, we're just kind of art, you know, we're just experiencing completely different lives. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, in Bali, we're all experiencing the same life and going, you know, on the same trips, um, experiencing the same day-to-day lives. So, and that in and of itself yeah. creates a bond. Well, so you're pretty lucky. I mean, she could have decided that she just hated being around you all the time, right? And vice versa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but somehow somehow that didn't happen. Now, wow, it sounds really idyllic. I assume you were not generating income through active participation in any kind of labor. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, I had people came over, like at the Green School, for example, somebody said, hey, would you join the board? And that's you know, and I love that. I love that place, but it really, if I were to join a board, it would be more of the same. And I'm really I was trying to take a break. Right, but I had opportunity to, and I had to turn the town. So, uh, I, I have so many more questions, and not that much more time. I want to make sure we get to uh, why did you come back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had evil thoughts when we were there not to come back. And it was my oldest son who sort of said, we had conversations as a family about it. Yes. You know, not, not don't come back, but, you know, should we take more time? Uh-huh. And um, my oldest son sort of felt like, you know, uh, I want to stay also, but I know I need to go back because I've got to stay on top of my studies and, you know, I'm going to fall behind in Bali. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we kind of knew that these, you know, that escapes like this are never, can never be permanent. And, um, you know, there are any number of reasons we couldn't ultimately stay, including, you know, elderly parents and mm-hmm. um, responsibilities back home. And so you can't, you can't escape forever. And but I do regret not spending more time um, if I could have, but you know, we're all live with, we all live within constraints. I was lucky enough to be able to take yes. Um And so, you know, you know, the Buddhists would say everything is impermanent and everything comes to an end, including sabbaticals. <laughs> so um, uh, I'm I'm curious to know m- more about what happened when you returned. So could you give us just like a brief bit about what happened upon your return for you and for your family? And then I want to make sure we get to the uh, the question of like what lessons other people who might not have the same set of resources that you had available to you, what they can take from your story. But first, yeah. what um, you know what happened when you when you came back? How were things different? in the other parts of your life beyond your family. So I come back to, um, uh, I, I come back to New York and, um, I'm obviously a very, very changed person. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was, you know, it's hard, right? You come, you come back and it's somebody once told me, you know, the more yoga that you do, the less employable you are. Hmm. And, um, uh, and I feel almost the same way about. I, I, I kind of agree, kind of don't agree with with all that. But I do know where it comes from, which is you're you're in this very different place, and it's and sometimes it's incompatible with the kind of life that you need to live as an aggressive um, and high achieving, involved mm-hmm. business person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back. I had, a, I had a, a private equity partnership that I came back to, but it took about a year for everybody to realize, like my heart, what my my, my heart wasn't really into it anymore, and we kind of figured something out uh, where I could, you know, make, I became vice chairman of the firm, but also an ability to do my own independent things, and um, it was a much, it was much, much more, it was a non-executive role. I see. And, um, and, um, uh, and I started, I got interested in um, creativity and entrepreneurship. One thing we didn't discuss on sabbatical was my exploration of creativity and becoming an artist. 
and um, so I, um, I spent a lot of time kind of exploring my art, and then but also getting involved with various entrepreneurs in um, my industry in investing and building up what was the beginnings of a firm um, to invest in digital media. Um, and um, and I pursued that for a little while. And I had this really interesting moment. You know, the book starts with kind of a hostile takeover of Take Two, and I had this interesting moment when the hedge fund called me and sort of said, hey, we're looking to do something similar in another area, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, real would be another kind of fight and another um, hostile takeover. And I just thought for a moment, and I was like, you know what, I just don't want to do that anymore. Or at least not now. I don't want to. Why do anything in your life hostile if you don't need to? And, <laughs> so, um, so that's something yoga so probably kind of, taught you. So yeah, you know, so I turned, I, I, so I turned that off. Um, and I was doing much. And I called. Um, I was raising a fund, and I called um, some of my relationships. And it was, it was. I found it relatively straightforward to raise a, um, and this for an opportunity based in Northern Europe. And then for whatever reason, I couldn't. I didn't feel like I can get the right kind of. Um, professional talent in Northern Europe that I was looking for. So I decided not to do it. And when I did that, one of the investors that I talked to about joining, so I said, well, if you're not going to do that, would you consider working with us directly? Um, and that was this company, Tencent, where I am currently employed. And, um, you know, I've been there for, for a while now. So it kind of, it was a bit of a meandering re-entry back into right. the business world. But you've um, you found a home now. A, but ultimately, a successful reentry. So uh, w- let's. Uh, I'm I'm very curious to know more about what how your family reacted to the transition back. But I think re- uh, readers are going to ha- listeners are going to have to read the book to find out more about that. I want to make sure we get to what ideas or insights you have for your the people you're you're trying to reach with this book. What what are the big ideas, the lessons that you want people to to know? from your experience? So, you know, the truth is that I take very great care not to make this a how-to book and not to draw mm-hmm. lessons for people. Okay. I take a lot of care to tell my story as as best I could, best I can, and have people draw their own conclusions. Maybe some people find it inspirational, some people find it motivational or aspirational. Um, some people can take lessons from it as they apply it to their own lives. Maybe not. Maybe they'll just sort of say, oh, sure, he can do it because he's with the CEO, but I'm not, and therefore I can't do it, which I think would be the wrong lesson. Um, so I kind of am really trying not to be, not to tell people what to do, and it's really not a how-to book. It's more like, you know, when you pray love story. Um, if I were, if you were to, um, you know, hold a gun to my head and sort of say, yeah, but, okay, beyond that, what do you tell you, user? I think there are a few things. One, well, is, it's really what did you uh, learn? You know that 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 others might be able to relate to. What as as you reflected yeah. on your experience, and I'm sure part of the, you know the, the reason you were compelled to to want to write it was not just to share it with you know future generations of your family. I know that was one motivation, but uh, to, I, I'm guessing to to articulate you know what it meant to you. Yeah, um, there are a few of them. I. I would say, first of all, um, to have the, to feel the power of yourself to live the life you want, to make a deliberate choice, even if it's a frightening one and, um, um, you know, requires a bit of courage. And I would say courage is a virtue that comes only when you feel fear. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay to feel fear about what you're, what you're about to do, but the virtue the virtuous life that you can live as a result of that is well worth it, in my opinion. 
it's always good to take calculated risks, but live the life that you want and be deliberate about the choices that you make and mm-hmm. to, um, you know, being carried away by the stream of events and the stream of life, you know, kind of get off, get out of the stream, get off the bank and observe and make the choices that you want. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one, one area. The other question I get asked sometimes is, well, if you can't afford or don't think you can afford mm-hmm. or whatever it is, but you, you can't take a sabbatical and quit your job and leave, what can you do, you know, with, by staying in place mm-hmm. and staying in your job to kind of create that sense of well-being mm-hmm. and that sense of, you know, work-life integration. Mm-hmm. And again, I can tell you my experience. My experience is a number of things. One, um, meditation, uh, you know, there are practices that we can engage in that I describe in the book, and I do try to describe some leadership lessons in the book too, but there are practices that we call can engage in um, that enable that kind of uh, living. And um, some of it is meditation and some of it is yoga and the sense of presence and oneness that people feel when they're engaged in that kind of um, practice. The other is a practice that I describe in the book, which is not mine, um, uh, but I do adopt it. It's called an inquiry practice. You're really kind of all the self-critical thoughts and all the um, the, neg- the negativity-biased thoughts that we all want to walk around in. So one of the one of the exercises that you can do is when you sort of feel those thoughts and sort of say, oh, "I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not all that mm-hmm. the litany that we all walk around with." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at those thoughts, see if you can examine those, like, what, what, is it true? Is it really true? What incontrovertible evidence do I have that it's really true? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and if you can't develop that evidence and sort of imagine, it's like, well, what would it be like? What would, what would my life be like if I thought that it wasn't true, that I actually am good enough and I'm smart enough and I'm rich enough and all mm-hmm. And how would that turn around my life? And it's remarkable what that little exercise can do. That's uh, a delightfully important insight about, uh, yeah, just testing your everyday hypotheses about how you live your life, and and that is, I think, the most powerful piece that I take from your story. The, the, uh, how stepping back and just reflecting on what matters can really shift your point of view and and your and what what then you do with your your world. <clears throat> a question I've been asking everyone, I've only got another minute or so, Ben, uh, is um, is this. How do you bring compassion now to your working life? Uh, it's a great question, and I think compassion starts with self-compassion, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, and, you know, being kind to yourself and the exercise that I just described is one way to be kind to yourself. The other one I described, I used to my kids also, which is, you know, all that self-critical thought, would you mm-hmm. ever say to your worst enemy out loud what you say to yourself in your head? That's a good one. And um, and you never would, right? So that's kind of a great little starting point for self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Relax, tone down the self-critical voice in the head. Um, and, you know, so I kind of, that's one thing I do. And then what I realized, I'll give you a, kind of a practical thing that I do, is I walk around New York City with a wad of $1 bills. And I used to be, the kind of person that would not give to beggars on the street because, oh, give to an organization that can really help. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really legal to panhandle on the subway and all that stuff. And, I, and every now and then I get annoyed as like anybody else does. But, you know, when somebody asks you for money, even if they're 
drug, and even if they're a heroin addict, and even if they're all the litany mm-hmm. of things that people say, why well, should you get somebody? You know, they are deserving of compassion. And, um, you know, I and, and forget they're deserving of compassion. Right? What happens to me and my brain when mm-hmm. somebody asks me for something like that and I say no? What does that do to me? That's that's a great place so, for us to to conclude. We, I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time now, Ben. But th- th- that great. that is a powerful thought for us to conclude on. Ben Feder, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How briefly can can our listeners find out more about your book and the other work you're doing? Um, it's uh, uh, it's really easy. Just go to Amazon.com and the book is called "Take Off Your Shoes: One Man's Journey from the Border to Bali and Back." Um, and the author is Ben Feder. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben Fetter. Really appreciate your time this evening. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Fetter and that it stimulated your thinking, that it provoked you. Picking up on this idea of developing a practice of inquiry, let me offer you a challenge, an invitation, to try to think about how you might question a long-held assumption you have about yourself that, on close inspection, might not be true, or true in the same way that it has been. Maybe it's about the kind of person you are, what you deserve in life, the things you do routinely without thinking. Step back for just a minute or two and take a look at any such assumption and ask whether you want to continue to hold it. Hmm. Does that change things? How? I'd love to hear what you discover, so get in touch with me directly. Again, it's Friedman at Wharton.upen.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there, or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.